Welcome to Friday. Welcome to Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. And as the name Week in Review implies, it is the end of the conventional work week. And we're going to review it to see if anything changed that you ought to know about. I've got to three successful local journalists here, three local journalists at the top of their game whom you can see for yourself on YouTube or Facebook because we stream the program there. You just search KUOW Public Radio. My panelists today, KUOW politics reporter David Hyde. What a pleasure, David. Hi, Bill. Nice to see you. We've got political analyst and contributing columnist Joni Balter. Joni, welcome back. Good to see you. And good to see you. And I'm so happy to see Seattle Times general assignment and breaking news reporter Amanda Zhu. Amanda, you had a story in the Times this week. I saw the headline. It said Seattle's post 5 p.m. sunsets are here. And even though I I did think this is a news story that the, that the earth turned as we expected it to. But I still clicked on it because I really wanted to read about about the coming of the light. So thank you. I think we're all happy to have a little bit more daylight every day. You're pretty new to to Seattle. Um, do you, is is have you wherever you lived before? Where, did people follow the the, uh, the 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 what are they the path of the sun like we do here? <laughs> Definitely not. I think Seattle is one of those places where people really care about astronomy. Um, and so I moved here in June when the days were super long, and uh, I kind of feel like you know I've made it to the other side now. You made it. To, you're you're making it through the dark season. I can't tell you you're you've made it through the rainy season. I just want you to know. <laughs> All right, fair. Yeah. Anybody else following the path of the sun? Well, I think I think that day, January 26th, should should be kind of a state holiday. You know, where everyone <laughs> stays home from work to celebrate the 501 sunset. Oh wait, a lot of people are staying home anyway. Yeah, but yeah. look, this was a really rough year in Seattle. There was so much darkness, probably about the same as every other year. Hmm. But add to that all that rain. So I think this is entirely worth getting cranked up about. You know, I've noticed this day, but nobody ever talked about it. So much exulting in this moment. Uh, you know, and I tested it myself uh, yesterday. I went out to Seward Park did my little workout thing. A lot of people were out. Um, but I, you know, I think it's really just our own version of like Punxsutawney Phil. I have my own. I watched this tree. I have mentioned this before. I watched this ugly cherry tree at 12th and Yesler. It's nothing to look at, but I have always used it as my sort of own private indicator of sort of Groundhog Day in my own. And it usually blooms ahead of all the other ones on uh, either February 4 or 5. And when I see that, I just feel so relieved. Like all is forgiven. Spring is on the way. 504 Lovely. today, 506 tomorrow. <laughs> and David, in case you missed Amanda's article, I think uh, I think it's <clears throat> a six o'clock sunset in uh, in early to mid-March. And then we change the clocks and it's seven o'clock and we're off to the races. Yeah, I love the longer days and also lived back east in Boston, actually, right before moving out here in the 2000s. And when I first moved here, actually, I remember our old program director telling me there are only two seasons in Seattle, <laughs> the rainy season and the dry season. And the dry season lasts for about a month and a half. Mm -hmm. um, but in fact, it's, he's wrong. It's the it's the light season, the lightness season, the emerging lightness season and the and the looming darkness season. Yes. And now we're in this emerging lightness season. And my favorite thing to do is to call my family uh, back east in New England or up in Canada where my brother told me recently it hit negative 40 degrees centigrade at his house and say, hey, how's the weather? How's your weather? <laughs> it's mild here. All right. Well, thank you for that. Amanda, I know that death and taxes are coming too. I will not click on that, but I will read about my planet's inevitable orientation to its star. So I, uh, I appreciate that. Let's get into the show. Uh, week in review. We check in on, on what happened this week and what it means. We check in on the pandemic, of course. COVID cases declined again in King County this week, not in eastern Washington yet. There's a new subvariant of Omicron known as BA2 that now makes up most of the COVID cases in Denmark, and it was found in Washington state this week. But we don't know yet that it's any faster spreading or any more virulent than plain old Omicron. Uh, this is interesting. The state of Washington might make it illegal. They're discussing this right now. They might make it illegal to use or sell a fake vaccine card. It would be a misdemeanor to show a fraudulent card to get into a bar, restaurant, concert, 
it would be a felony to buy and sell fake cards. The prime sponsor is Democratic State Senator Jesse Solomon of Shoreline, who says he's not trying to send a bunch of people to jail. He just wants customers to actually be vaccinated. For me and others, it brings us comfort to know that I can go into a coffee shop. Everybody here is vaccinated. I can feel safer taking my mask off. And if somebody blows a hole in that, it's really offensive or unnerving to the rest of us who are relying on that. The thinking is, you know, if people know that there's a, a sanction, it's going to head off 80 or 90 percent and just make people think twice about it. Speaking against the bill this week was Yakima County Commissioner Amanda McKinney. There is simply no need to single out and make criminal the presentation or creation of a falsified COVID vaccination card and continue to engage in open public persecution of the residents and visitors to our beautiful Washington state. Amanda, how would a restaurant worker know your card is fake? You know, I think it would be really hard for them because I don't think there is a centralized database of, you know, who's been vaccinated in a really easy way for people to search that. Um, I guess, you know, if I was a service worker and it became obvious to me that a vaccine card was fake, I guess what I would probably do is the same thing that you would do if you'd found a fake ID, which I think is to confiscate it and then call the police. Um, But then I kind of wonder, you know, a vaccine card doesn't kind of go through the same amount of scrutiny that it takes to get a license. You know, there's, I imagine like a scannable thing on it. You can look it up online and that doesn't really exist for COVID cards. So I think it would be really hard to implement it uh, as a service worker, especially, you know, we've seen over the last two years, they're already being harassed for doing stuff like asking people to wear masks and checking vaccine cards. David, you have a fake card, right? I assume. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I'm triple vax and mine are not fake, but I, I was wondering how hard it is to actually buy a fake vaccine card because I've been seeing these stories and went Googling around myself to a number of online sites this morning to see if I could find one. I couldn't find any for sale. Um, Mm. So I was thinking, well, perhaps it's just easier to make one um, yourself. But in that case, you probably have to borrow one from somebody who'd been vaccinated. That might be hard to do. Um, So if anybody knows, has anybody actually seen one of these things for sale? I have not. I haven't seen one for sale, but it's sort of like we knew this day was going to come, right? Where, you know, people would be trading in these somehow or faking them somehow. Um, me personally, I'm not sure we should criminalize um, fake vaccine cards, but think about it. I- individual estab- establishments, bars, restaurants, they bounce people out for a zillion reasons. And I don't know how you can ask sort of your employees, how are they going to know it's fake? Like if you took a picture of your card or my card or someone else's card, they don't like really take the card away, like you were saying, and go run it against a database. They just they just sort of take it on faith. And, and it, I mean, I think it's terrible because, you know, the, what some of these um, employers of and bars and restaurants are trying to do is, is simply protect patrons and their employees. This is a great resign, everybody, right? You should protect the employees you have. You should protect the people willing to come to your establishment. But I think it's not going to be easy. I think you're going to somehow have to know they're like joking or just making fun of it or making light of it. And if you can, toss them out. We have bouncers. Mm-hmm. Anybody think this is going to pass? Hard to say still, right? Yeah, we don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll watch it. This is a proposal to, uh, to make it a, a misdemeanor to show, to flash a fake vaccine card and a felony to, to traffic in them, to buy and sell them, uh, which, uh, as David said, uh, is... Uh, it's hard, to, it's hard to find that market. Uh, you can, uh, another COVID note, Amanda, you reported on the fact that we can now get free COVID tests and masks, uh, but that's not an obvious thing. Basically, people can go to your story at Seattle Times, but basically, how do we get that free stuff? Well, it's not super clear, aside from the online portals that the federal government in Washington made available. Um, of course, now all the tests that were available through the state have now been claimed. Hmm. Um Officials locally say that they're supposed to be receiving them the next couple of weeks and that they're going to be distributing them to libraries and community centers and local health groups. But it's sort of not clear whether they've already started that, you know, how many have been distributed and where exactly to go. Um, I will say that free N95 masks should be rolling out this week and next week. 
Um, those are mostly coming through the federal government, through the federal retail pharmacy program. So one way to think about this is that any place that you could have gone for a vaccine should be offering N95 masks soon. Mm. Okay. And, I, and I'm really happy to see that the CDC finally distinguished between masks that, that work pretty well and masks that don't. And so that that's helpful. I mean, everybody, there's going to be a run on these things, of course. And I know um, at the beginning with the tests for the state of Washington, people were just astounded how fast some of these tests got out really quickly, but then they ran out. And so, you know, this will be, everyone will think it's a supply problem. It probably is. But, you know, over time, people are going to get access to this. This is helpful, really helpful. Uh, Another uh, note, pandemic note, I saw, David, that Seattle grocery workers are going to, for now, they're going to continue to get hazard pay, which is from, this is not government pay, right? This is the government requiring the employers, the grocers, to, to pay workers an extra four bucks an hour. The city council voted to keep that going for a while. Yeah, you know, and as we all know here in Seattle, there's a lot of understandable sympathy for our frontline workers, especially during this pandemic. I think just uh, two out of nine of the council members voted against extending um, the hazard pay. On the other side, uh, if you looked at the the stories about that, the Northwest Grocers Association said basically, you know, look out, this just means more food price inflation, which I took note of because I've been doing some reporting on uh, some of the Republican talking points in the 8th Congressional District, uh, just east of Seattle, where a congressional race is heating up and inflation is a big talking point for King County Council member Reagan Dunn. He's got uh, Facebook posts up every day about the price of beef or the price of eggs and that sort of thing going uh-huh. up. And I've been over there talking to voters and voters are bringing it up too. Um, you know, so clearly they think that that's going to be a good talking point for them here. And I was interested to see the uh, grocery association using it in Seattle, where I think it's just a, it's, it, you know, I think people are concerned about inflation, but it's a different kind of a conversation here where people are also, you know, pretty concerned about grocery frontline grocery workers and other front frontline workers. Yeah. In fact, we're going to talk in a moment about the politics of Seattle and the politics of King County. Uh, any other any other notes on uh, on the pandemic, grocery workers or otherwise? Feel we covered they clearly it? deserve to have that hazard pay. These folks are in these stores, you know, hours upon hours. And you really want them to have access to that um, that acknowledgement, I guess, of what they're doing. They're some will say, oh, they're just going to work. Yeah, but they're they're taking a risk and it, it's it's the right thing to do for the city. It is. But it's I the, agree. Yeah, go ahead. And Amanda. I would hope that it um, helps any of the labor shortages that we've been seeing. Mm-hmm. But are, is the Grocers Association saying, OK, just but but have the government pay for it, not us? I don't know that they're saying that they're uh, saying they're saying our members, whatever yeah. the, the grocery stores are going to pass that four bucks an hour on to consumers, basically. Okay. And I'm not an economist. I'm not sure exactly how that works. Right. Uh, last note, there were three flu deaths in our state after a couple zero official flu related deaths. So public health is telling you don't stop at the covid shot. Get the flu shot. L. You're listening to Week in Review on KOW. I'm Bill Radke. Good to have you along. We've got Seattle Times general assignment and breaking news reporter Amanda Zoe. We've got political analyst and contributing columnist Joni Balter and KOW's politics reporter David Hyde. And uh, in fact, David told us this week about uh, President Trump's former lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, uh, who's about to be the keynote speaker at a King County Republican fundraiser in March. The uh, King County Republican Party's finance chair, Hussein Karam, is enthused. It's going to be a great, great evening, and it's going to be a, a great function for the entire Northwest. David, I would think that King County is one of the least Trumpy counties in America. Why would the uh, local Republican Party bring Giuliani here to speak? Yeah, I spoke to Hussein about that for quite a while. Uh, he's a very chatty guy. And, and he also told me the news that uh, part of the plan is to take Rudy on a tour of the CHOP site here in Seattle, um, where Rudy's supposedly going to talk about the hypocrisy of the left. That's um, Hussein's phrase. David, I just want to make sure for those, especially outside of Seattle, who don't know CHOP site, um, the Capitol Hill organized protest. We will probably remember the protest in summer of 2020. Right, where the uh, Seattle East Precinct was abandoned there for a while, and Jenny Durkin got in trouble uh, with uh, calling it the summer of love by President Trump. And 
who was going to send in federal troops and blah, blah, blah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so, you know, from what I can tell, this is kind of a red meat tour. Uh, get the base all fired up, charge 150 bucks a head or 250 bill if you're interested for the VIP reception and photo op hmm. uh, that be, they'll be having with Rudy afterwards. And and to me, at least, you know, all of that kind of makes sense. There's an internal logic to that. But what I don't understand is kind of what you implied, sort of strategic thinking. Why would you bring Rudy Giuliani, of all people, to Western Washington when you're trying to take back Congress? This is a guy who tried to overturn the 2020 election results with nothing, basically conspiracy theories. He's still looking at major lawsuits and federal investigations. You know, I you picture that image of the sort of hair product dripping down his face. Yeah. Um, you know, is this really the best brand ambassador for Western Washington Republicans and folks like Reagan Dunn, who are trying to win in the eighth congressional district? Because I've been out talking to folks, moderates and independents. And while they may be interested in Republicans, they're not into these conspiracy theories. So I'm I'm not quite sure what they're doing. And to me, it seems uh, perhaps they're not thinking about that at all, which is pretty sort of cultish and depressing. So I'm saying Rudy Giuliani to the King County Lincoln Day dinner in March. What, the QAnon shaman was booked? Well, anyway, <laughs> this is a completely awful idea. This is the most divisive guy in the world. Uh, sort of a traveling goof, you know, as even some Republicans have said. But I have late breaking news on this. Uh, just learned this about about a half an hour ago, and you heard it here first. Giuliani is not coming anymore. What? What? Oh, who, to, who told you that? Well, so a source. A source, one would say. And so what happened is they're going to say um, you'll hear, oh, scheduling conflict. Um, it's not a scheduling conflict. It's um, what happened is they got a lot of complaints about this, just a ton of them. Uh, you realize, look, this year for the Republicans is looking pretty already. I mean, a guy like Reagan Dunn does have a good chance in the 8th District. So why screw it up with this guy who just says the worst things, uh, makes people wonder why they are Republicans and can't get over uh, 2020 in any way possible. He, wherever he goes, he embarrasses himself. Um, so, you know, you're going to tell me that a lot of people are sort of leaning more Republican, but not. And, and Stuart Elway's polling this week did find uh, more people in the last six months identifying as Republicans. But that doesn't mean they like Rudy Giuliani or that he can help them in any way. So you'll see uh, canceled scheduling conflict. Uh, just saying. Wow. OK. Indictment conflict. No, that's not happening. He's just not, uh, he's not coming. All right. Yes. Um, yes? No, go ahead. Um, so I, I guess I guess my answer to the question when I found out he was coming, well, or I had a question is that maybe most people aren't paying attention like we are, and he's, <laughs> maybe he's going to raise so much money that it's it's more than worth the you know, any downside. And, and you know, and even even the Twitter wars about even the back and forth about this, we, we've heard over and over that uh, sometimes Republican voters or possible potential Republican voters just get fired up when they when they see that kind of the outrage and, and the how dare you. Um, but anyway, for some reason, they've they've uh, they whatever went into it has gone out of it. It sounds well, like some actual thought occurred, which is which is a good thing. <laughs> and, as, and as you pointed out, you know, Trump, uh, Donald Trump won King County. I mean, lost King County, sorry, uh, by 22 percent. It's not it's not a big amount of support. So I, I, I think the, the King County Republicans, if they have, in fact, and I believe they have changed the uh, the headliner here. Um, it's a good decision. It's a good decision if, 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 if that unfolds, and that's what I think is going to unfold. That's political analyst Joni Balter analyzing politics, and we've got politics reporter David Hyde here. We've got a, a lot of knowledge uh, right here at, uh, at KUOW. We've got Seattle Times reporter Amanda Zoe, and we're figuring out what happened this week and what it means. Thanks for listening. You can watch us, too, because we're streaming the show, as we always do, on YouTube and Facebook. You just search for KUOW Public Radio. We'll take a brief break. We've barely started. We're going to talk more about uh, the, well, the, the next topic is 
we are used to getting asked for our ticket. If you if you ride a train, or uh, especially, I I don't get asked for a ticket on a on a metro bus, but the the agent will walk through tickets, please. Um, but although you might be used to it, that doesn't mean that that is a constitutional act that you get stopped and asked for your ticket. We are going to talk about that when we return on Week in Review. Don't go away. It's KOW's Week in Review. Bill Radke here with my colleague David Hyde and columnist and political analyst Joni Balter and the Seattle Times, Amanda Zoe, figuring out what happened this week gone by. I read in the Seattle Times that our state Supreme Court's going to decide whether transit agents are allowed to board your train or bus and ask to see your ticket. Is that an unconstitutional search and seizure? Joni Balter, an agent asking for your ticket is something we are very used to. Why might it be unconstitutional? Um, Well, I think, let me start by saying, I think we would all like to see transit be free. But if you are charging, uh, the question here now um, is, is it unconstitutional to ask you to produce the ticket? And so the Supreme Court has taken this up. I think it's wild or weird or whatever you want to say. Uh, You know, if transit is going to charge, you don't have transit agents exactly like grabbing your purse or taking your coat to find the ticket. They're asking you to produce the ticket. So that's why I think it's strange that this would become uh, such an issue. Think about it. If, you know, like some subway systems uh, use turnstiles. So it, it never becomes an issue. You can't get from here to there without showing a ticket in, an, in a, usually in an electronic way these days. Because you can't jump over a turnstile. What else well, are you going to do? Seen plenty of that. Seen plenty of that, but not, and not enough to make that, uh, you know, the biggest deal. Yeah. Uh, you have some of our local agencies using what they call ambassadors. And so that's that sort of goodwill thing. You can at least ask for it. I mean, you know, one day maybe this is all going to be done by robots, probably. But what what seems ridiculous is to say that you're going to charge and then say, if it was carried out like this, that you're not going to ask for proof of payment because otherwise your system is going to become a joke. Are Seahawks games free? You know, you, you know, somehow you wrangle your way in there. I just think that, you know, you have to decide, is this part of your funding then you have to enforce it. Now, you can design beautiful ways to enforce it that are not exactly the way we do it now. That's right. not the worst idea. Right, right. Amanda, the question isn't whether you whether the agencies can uh, make it uh, a paid trip, uh, but this question of that, that stop, is that they don't have a warrant? They don't have uh, reasonable suspicion that you didn't pay? Uh, is it unconstitutional or not? Any, any other thoughts? Right. To me, this is really, it falls into the theme of how policing is being scrutinized at every level. Um, You know, there's been previous reporting that shows that people who get cited disproportionately are people who are homeless and Black people. Um, In the case, you know, this guy, um, he ended up being arrested for something separate and the officers patted him down. And so, you know, there's multiple things that can happen after someone asks you for your fare. And I think all of that is being scrutinized. Um, And I guess I'd add one thing, which is you know, from the other hand, the bus system needs a way to enforce the fare. It's a big source of their funding, from what I understand. Um, but on the end, you know, getting around is really important in Seattle. And it's something that a lot of low income people rely on, um, you know, regardless of whether they have a criminal charge against them or not. And so that's a way I would say it's a little bit different than a Seahawks scheme, which is that, you know, there's also a question of to what degree is mobility a fundamental human right. Right, right. One of the attorneys defending passengers said, uh, if, if you consent to questioning just by using a public service, as you say, that's going to disproportionately target the people who use public services the most. And, and David, the state said you're not giving up a privacy because everybody can see you boarded the train and you're supposed to have a ticket. So showing and by the way, showing your ticket or your ORCA card is not giving up any personal information. It's not like you're just driving to the drugstore and you're getting stopped. By boarding the train, you've basically voluntarily promised to buy a ticket, so uh, so, so showing it's not a problem. Um, yeah, any other thoughts on the, the legal arguments here or the, uh, the, the budget hole that we mentioned that might, that might hit any transit agency that, uh, that, that can enforce it that way? 
You know, just uh, Amanda's point about the police being scrutinized at every level, and maybe this isn't the best system, and certainly that's what the Supreme Court may end up finding. Um, I noticed that the person representing the state in this and essentially transit agency said, look, we're going to be stuck with only three options, um, which Joni mentioned, build turnstiles like the New York City subway, but that's really expensive, make the whole system free to ride, but then you're uh, you know, looking at a state that has to pay for things like healthcare and other things like education. Does it mean less transit? So there's there are issues there. Um, even though we'd like to make it free, maybe that's not the best solution. Mm-hmm. I like the third one, a, a true honor system with no enforcement, um, because I think that it's an opportunity maybe, you know, to try that for a year where we can have a serious kind of civics conversation about positive freedoms, the freedom to do things like be a responsible citizen, pay what you owe if you can to get onto this system, as opposed to the freedom from everything and sort of not paying uh, or, you know, doing your fair share. And look, if you can't pay in that system, you just wouldn't pay. So it seems like to me, an honor system might be the best solution. But I want to ask this, you know, sound transit uh, is, you know, a very expensive new system that we're building right now. And it's almost like we keep hitting, hitting their funding from different ways. So if they, where are they going to get the funds to be an honor system? They rely on some of these, some percentage of, of their budget comes from fares. So, you know, where does that money come from? Do they go back to the voters and say, would you now like to cover that? Because then you're pricing people out of their houses, houses in some parts of the sound transit area. Uh, David just called it the positive freedom tax. That's an inspiring (laughs) name. I mean, if you're going to have fares, you should probably have a a passenger friendly way of proving that most people are following the rule. Otherwise, everyone else is, what are they, suckers or something? They're just, they... You're riding because you feel like paying. Or See, that's the negative freedom way of looking at it. <laughs> uh-huh. It's the positive, freedom. positive the freedom. The freedom while paying to for pay. Very expensive light rail system. It's the freedom to vote and to do wonderful things. That's what the the country was actually founded on, not the freedom to to you know be a jerk. <laughs> Amanda, I know uh, you're you're pretty new to Seattle, and I don't know whether this is still true of Seattle. I've uh, I've been around here a long time, but I used to think of this. Uh, this kind of place, Joni can is, might be with me here. That if any, if an honor system was going to work anywhere, it would be in Seattle. That people would just show up and pay. <laughs> Maybe they have a big tip jar too. You know, pay extra <laughs> pay if extra. you can. Freedom to freedom to tip. I'm not sure Sound Transit would be so reassured by the goodwill of all yeah. of us Seattle residents. <laughs> Good point. It's no, billions I, of it's billions of dollars of revenue. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I agree that if you were going to have an honor system, Seattle would probably be the place. But you know how these budgets roll out. They write in a number that they're going to get from fares and their experience. First of all, you know, uh, transit ridership is down nationwide because of COVID. People aren't going to the office. And so you just have to ask yourself, how are they going to fill that gap? If, if you've got a good answer, great. Sounds fantastic. And finally, David, did you pronounce it turnstiles? <laughs> oh, I may have. I believe that's the uh, Canadian pronunciation. Oh, is that right? I thought it sounded have very... Have you ever jumped one? <laughs> I have not. I don't think so. I don't think I have. That's Even if you say it that way, I thought maybe that would help. I thought it was very mid-Atlantic or something. Like Grace Kelly would talk about jumping the turnstiles. Uh, okay, let's. <laughs> I just made that up. I don't know if Grace Kelly actually says that. Uh, that's David Hyde, KOW politics reporter. We've got political analyst Joni Balter, Seattle Times reporter Amanda Zoe, and uh, this is Week in Review. Um, our next topic you are getting a refund if you're one of those Washington workers who got charged a new payroll tax for long term care. Here's basically what happened. The state decided that Washingtonians don't have enough long-term care insurance. They set up a new benefit program, first of its kind in the nation, to be paid for with this payroll tax, which kicked in on January 1st. You had to pay the tax unless you got your own private plan by the autumn, but getting a private plan turned out to be really hard. Governor Inslee, why didn't the state make the program voluntary? You can't make a protective policy like this built on rainbows and, and lollipops. You have to have a revenue stream to make it available to everyone. So saying you want it voluntary means you you don't want a functioning program. 
because you cannot make a functioning program that's voluntary. The Lollipop and Rainbow Act of 2022 will now be debated. But for now, the legislature has put this on pause. And Amanda, why didn't state supporters, basically state Democrats, see this coming? Or, or did they? Do you think they were they warned? Well, I don't know. You know, it's something I've been thinking myself, because um, when I was talking to a lot of these advocates and lawmakers last year, they were pretty much saying, you know what, we know this program has some issues. We want to fix them. Some of those are the issues that they're trying to fix now, but they sort of said, let's just get this payroll deduction going and we'll fix it later. Um, I think they might have underestimated some of the outrage that was going to come from sort of a program that was kind of vague and hard to understand uh, that would you know, directly affect most people's paychecks. Um, and then last year, there was a ballot initiative that would have made it sort of so that anyone could pretty much opt out of the program, which would really have uh, damaged the program. And I think that's what kind of kicks Democrats into saying, all right, well, you know, we'll put on the brakes. You know, don't don't get rid of this program yet. Give us a chance to fix it before we start collecting the money. Oh, so, David, just that ballot measure, even though it didn't become law, that that had its effect, you think? Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm hearing, also hearing uh, or reading. But I'm also hearing that um, there may be some tactics involved uh, lurking in the background behind the scenes. There's always politics there may be a ballot measure this year to repeal the capital gains tax. And uh, because a lot of big money people in tech, you know, are claiming that this capital gains tax is going to destroy them and destroy innovation. Uh, but, you know, that capital gains tax was a huge win for the progressive left and the left and, and the Democrats generally in Seattle. So concern about that potential ballot measure has led folks to say, hey, this is the thing that we need to really focus in on this year in case it happens, because we don't want to be having to fight multiple fronts, um, you know, and uh, uh, who knows, though, whether or not we'll actually see that capital gains uh, ballot measure uh, to repeal the capital gains ballot measure, I should say, Mm -hmm. actually materialize. Well, that's really that's really good context for it, because as you probably know, you know, this was a speaker of the House bill. It had a lot of um, union backing behind it. It was jammed through. Uh, there weren't a lot of uh, opportunities for amendments. And so you, you end up with a bill that everybody knew was flawed. Uh, and, and now they have to fix it so they don't walk into these messes that you're describing, David. This was, this was not um, legislating at its best, shall we say. <laughs> this was um, kind of a rush job and, and we insist that this happen and we don't care that it has all these flaws. I mean, that's not a good way to present yourself to the public. Hey, we did that. We did half the bill and we'll fix it later. You know, it just, that's not good legislating. It's that's a, what they're going to do. They're going to, they're going to come back and fix it. Uh, yeah. Fix it or nix it. Yeah. I think some changes uh, include um, workers. If you're close to retirement, you can now qualify for partial benefits instead of just paying in and getting nothing out of it. Um, as some other other groups of workers will be will be allowed to opt out, which sounds kind of lollipops and rainbows, according to Governor Inslee, but maybe not so many kinds of workers that it'll be a big deal. And I just want to say, what's so bad about lollipops and rainbows? I mean, what's mm. wrong with this guy? Well, I, I just I just want to say, why can't we use lollipops and rainbows to pay our fare on, on Sound Transit and Metro? <laughs> That's what I was getting at. Exactly. I don't have ticket money, but I have one unicorn that I'd like to uh, <laughs> put in the tip jar. <laughs> yeah. So put it. I jumped the turnstile just so that I could tip you a unicorn. Um, OK. Any other uh, any other updates, uh, Amanda? I guess they they this is on pause, right? It's going to come come back in a, like a year and a half or something. Right. So right now, the payroll deduction is slated to come back in July 2023. And then the date that the program will start paying out benefits has also been pushed back a little bit. Um, But you're right that Inslee, I think, yesterday signed a bill that would allow certain people to opt out of the program. So these are people who would never see benefits, people who live in Idaho or Oregon, but work in Washington and therefore would have been subject to the tax. Oh, that makes sense. So, so the idea behind this, of course, we shouldn't we shouldn't just um, not recognize that. Yeah, but we haven't talked about long term care, which is the, which is the point. We haven't <laughs> to to help this. This is a real problem, and people suffer quite a bit. The caregivers and the people who need the care. So that's not that's not the question. 
the idea is, could you, could you build a bill that works? You know, this thing was polling at about 40%. There were tons of uh, uh, constituent complaints coming in. The, the, the legislature knew at the beginning of the year here that they had to get in here and, and start working, work that wasn't done before it was passed. Okay, so we might still have the nation's first similar benefit program, payroll tax funded uh, uh, long-term care benefit program. Uh, it'll just uh, it, it might come back in a year and a half. Uh, OK, that I think we covered that. There's a new a possible uh, change to the way you get to vote in Seattle. And KOW's politics reporter David Hyde is all over that. Political analyst Joni Balter is right on that. We've got Seattle Times general assignment and breaking news and sunset reporter Amanda Zoe. Uh, covering all of that. And we'll tell you something that, that's smile worthy, a reason, a reason for for hope, a silver lining. I dare say a lollipop and a rainbow by the time the show is over. So uh, you can you can watch us uh, online on YouTube, Facebook. Just search KOW Public Radio. Either way, we take a quick break now. We'll come right back. Sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. Everything that's wonderful yeah, is what I feel when we're together. I'm Bill Radke. And I'm talking this week. We're reviewing the week with David Hyde, Joni Balter, and Amanda Zoe, and uh, running the board, as we say, making all this happen here at KOW is Bernard Ouellette, who chooses the music in real time and uh, just uh, does the right thing constantly. Uh, and we're glad you're listening. You can follow us on uh, YouTube or Facebook if you want. You could see you could see everybody but Bernard. You can see me and my and my three guests. So uh, we're we're rolling on as we figure out what happened this week. And David Hyde, you did your job this week by telling us about a new way of voting that might come to Seattle. Instead of forcing voters to pick only one candidate in the primary, we're proposing that voters be allowed to pick as many candidates as they want. You can pick as many candidates as you want. That's an initiative organizer, Logan Bowers. Uh, David, choosing as many voters, uh, uh, candidates as you want might sound, uh, I don't know, chaotic, anarchic, uh, delightful. How would it work? Uh, think of our last mayor's race, 15 candidates. You could vote in the primary uh, for any number of those candidates, one candidate, two candidates, five candidates, all 15 candidates, mm. only the top two vote getters from that system would then go on to the general election. And I spoke to Logan Bowers about this, um, you know, who's who's you just uh, played the clip there. Um, and he basically says approval voting is great. It's going to lead to more voter satisfaction. He points to studies that say, you know, it's it, one of the things that voters will like is that they don't have to vote strategically anymore, meaning you could vote for the candidate that you really love and the candidate that you, you think can win, but you're not as crazy about. Um, it would, um, uh, you know, of course, I mean, all of these things are sort of debatable. Um, it's not exactly clear that, that that voters would stop voting strategically. They did try this um, in last year's city election in St. Louis, which is one of the, I think, two cities that have it. Um, I'm reading kind of mixed reports. Um, it seems like it didn't really necessarily help third parties or take money out of politics, but, you know, it's only one election. We've had major reforms here, and, and sometimes these things take time to really evaluate. Um, so, you know, we'll see. But but you're going to be seeing signature gatherers he expects coming here in February. Amanda Zoe, we, we our listeners may have heard of something similar which is ranked choice voting, and that's different from this. You've reported on some ranked choice voting experiments. What do you want to say about this multiple uh, candidate idea? Yeah, I had never heard of approval voting before we talked about this, um, and it seems like it's sort of like a simpler version of ranked choice voting, which is for people who don't know, uh, you get a list of candidates and you sort of rank them. You say, here's my first choice, here's my second choice, and so on. Um, last year, we saw the New York City mayoral election use that system, and I think a couple of other municipalities as well. Um, but that's probably the most high-profile example. And, and so when I first heard of approval voting, it sounded like, you know, maybe a simpler version of that. Maybe it's easier to educate people about that. Um, so I, I guess I sort of wonder between these two types of voting, like what are their unique pros and cons? I just want to say about that, um, there, there is a state Senate panel that's passed a measure that would allow ranked choice voting here at the local level. So we may be seeing that as a potential option, too. 
backers of approval voting say exactly what you're saying, that it's it's simpler. You, you don't have to change the voting machines, for example, um, you know, to make approval voting work. And, and in both cases, you, you essentially get the chance to vote for multiple candidates. But in one case, you, you rank them. That's one of the differences. I do want to ask well, you more like, about the strategy of that, David. But Joni, yeah, what do you what do you have to say? Well, I like this? to um, zoom out here a little bit and look at um, the way that Washington or even Seattle voters tend to do. Any time somebody comes up with what they regard as a voting fix, um, we sort of have this insecurity. I think is the right word. Oh, they must be doing it better than us. We should try that. We should try that. So I kind of want to be open minded, but I have two issues with this idea. Uh, I don't like the idea of um, jumping on every fix that comes along without really, really, really studying it and making sure that it, it'll produce the result uh, that, that backers say. So I'll give you a good example of that. And um, it's district elections in Seattle. This was promoted. Oh my gosh, you're going to have such contact with your council member. It's going to make the city council better. No, it didn't. It made the city council worse. It made it harder for uh, individual district members to really grasp the bigger issues facing the city. So no one became like an expert on utilities. Nobody became an expert on uh, public facilities. It, it just, everybody was in their sort of narrow silos. I don't think that was an improvement, but it was billed as one. And then it is complicated when sometimes when people start talking about this, people's eyes glaze over. I'm sure you've noticed that. Um, and so what I don't like about it, again, trying to be open, is the fact that if you think people are suspicious of voting and counting and all that now, uh, when they have to sort of figure out what it means, oh, I got to vote for 15 people, but you only voted for two. Uh, that's just not enough um, lollipops for you in that regard. I think one race that happened recently, which might be relevant for uh, discussing this type of voting is actually the city attorney's race. Um, you know, in the primary, we had Pete Davidson, the incumbent, and Davidson, and then Nicole Thomas Kennedy, which were sort of seen as candidates to uh, his left and his right. And then you we mean, saw Pete, that Pete um, got sort of edged out. Well, Pete, um, not Davidson. Pete Holmes. Pete Holmes. Pete Holmes. Yes, go on. Just want to make sure I clear that up. Yes, you were saying. Right. And at the time, I was talking to some voters and they said, you know, maybe I'd really like to vote for the candidate to the left or the right, but I want to see at least Pete Holmes make it to the prime or make it to the general. And so they would vote for, you know, maybe not their preferred candidate, but someone they wanted to see in the end. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I wonder if, you know, changing our voting system would help address issues like this. That, that, I mean, that's exactly what backers say is that you wouldn't have to vote strategically. Um, but of course you could. You could say to yourself, I'm going to vote for the 14 candidates who aren't the candidate that I most hate so that that one doesn't oh, get yeah. through. Or, but that doesn't count upright because unless everybody else does that, that doesn't well, no, I mean, but, but, but you can vote strategically is the point, or you could vote for the one candidate that you want to get through, uh, you know, and not any of the others to, to try to force the hand. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of strategic voting that could still occur well, let me and, ask and you, would occur. In that, in, in that <laughs> regard, say you were for this system, what, what, what are you trying to fix? What's wrong? What's broken there? According to supporters, uh, you know, it's 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 the same as uh, we have with a lot of our voting reforms. Too much money in the system, too much dominance by um, the major parties. I've also heard uh, that this would it would tend to um, make it so that sort of extremist candidates would be less likely to get through because more voters would have to have approved of candidates for them to make it through. Again, I'm not a political scientist. I don't know if that's true, but that's one of the claims that the uh, proponents are making. It seems that if you use our recent mayoral election as, as an example, the voters got the candidates they wanted. They didn't have to twist into a pretzel, and I know I'll, I'll get trouble over that, but they didn't have to twist into a pretzel to figure out how is this one going to win or lose. They voted for who they wanted. You may not like the results, or you may like the results, but that's what voters had to say. I think part of it is that a lot of voters, when they are filling out their ballot, they're not just thinking about the issues or, you know, which candidates they like. They're also thinking about who's more likely to win. Um, and it kind of speaks to that effect of, you know, I maybe I like this candidate, but I don't think they're going to win. And therefore, I'm going to vote for my second or third choice who I think will win. Yeah. When you look at it that way, voters are already thinking strategically, if, if that's true. 
And uh, and I've also heard that uh, more choice would either ranked choice voting or approval voting would tend to reduce the negative polarization that because right now, if, if voters just have to choose one or the other, you have these strategies of, you know, just trying to bomb the other candidate, make them make them unpopular or um, or throw the red meat, as we were saying earlier, you know, to just fire up your base. And again, yeah, also as a non-political scientist, I don't know how all that would would play out, but I'm very interested. I do. Do any of you have any uh, non-political scientist opinions about what the effect of all this would be? So not just what the voters get to do, but if the voters were allowed to, let's say, vote for as many candidates they want. Do you have any hunches about who would be more likely to take office and make policy? It's too hard to say. I might be a little bit cynical, but I think initially we wouldn't see any real changes, but it would make voters feel better about their choices. Hmm. They just get well, more say. I guess I've all, always wanted voters to make more informed decisions. So I, I just vote for everybody. I don't have to read anything. I don't have to know anything. I'm just, you know, that name sounds good. Um, I, I think I think we should ask voters to do a little bit more civic education and of their duty please learn about the candidates you know and then make a decision that's what voting is you don't want to do the make the decision well that's what voting i think that's what voting is that's the whole point of it pick somebody i think it's a real challenge to fix our system and if what people don't like about it is that the two major parties dominate that most of these reform or that there's too much money that none of these reforms ever really get at that. We have democracy vouchers, but the major money candidates who were essentially the establishment candidates were the ones who got through in this last mayor's race. I'm not sure pre or after democracy vouchers, we would have ended up with any different candidates. We had some other candidates who were able to run campaigns as a result of the, the vouchers, but I'm not sure how much it changed the system. And you know, if we really want to change, I mean, I'm originally from Canada, you know, it sounds like what people want is a parliamentary system. So maybe start talking about that at the state level, because there you really can vote for the party that you believe in. And then the the coalition building happens at the level of governance. You don't have to worry about this multiple choice stuff. You just vote for the thing that you believe in. And then things get worked out once the governments get formed. Yeah. Well, one of the complaints is about, you know, the tone of the ads. And that's a that's a good that's a good thing to worry about. But you know what happened this year in that same mayor's race? The negative ads didn't work. And they, they bombed quickly. Like there was one trying to tie Bruce Harold to Donald, Donald Trump and everybody looks at each other and goes, Bruce Harold, Donald Trump? I don't think so. That doesn't, that's not even a comparison that makes any sense. And so it was off the air rather quickly because it didn't work. Uh, and there was another ad that, that backfired as well. So it's almost like... Uh, with regular old voting, uh, the negative ads didn't, didn't seem to be decisive. They weren't. Okay, that's a proposal to allow—this would just be in the primary election, right? To allow you, the voter, the Seattle voter, to, um, to choose as many candidates as you like. to, and, and then it would be still two going on to the general. Uh, David, finally, is this, oh, we would vote on this in November? Is that the idea? Ooh, they just filed, yeah. so they have to gather signatures. It has to get approved. They have to gather signatures. So we're a long way from that. But, you know, I, I'd expect that they will get the signatures. And you will, Bill, perhaps, or others who live in Seattle, have a chance to decide whether or not they want to sign that thing and ultimately whether or not they want to vote for it. And I think, as Joni says, I mean, voters in Seattle have, have shown themselves to, to really want to do something about these these big problems that are that are real, uh, too much money and sort of the dominance, the two parties. And, and maybe this will help. Maybe this will help. Maybe this will give you a reason to smile. Meanwhile, we're going to give you a reason to smile as we before we uh, head out of here. Anybody want to leave us with uh, could be some good news, could be a hopeful sign, could be a, le- a lollipops and, and rainbows. What made you smile? So how about COVID cases dropping in King County? Yeah, we almost celebrate because, you know, as I've said a couple of times, people really uh, our leaders really did do a good job on that and our citizens um, have done a reasonably good job on that uh, yeah. in terms of getting vaccinated and protecting themselves and masking and all that. Uh, and then the other thing, bright as it can be, the calendar. Uh, it's almost February, almost the end of the, the darkness. And as you said, we're not, we're not ending any rain because we're too smart about 
how that works. Yeah. But um, you know, February's hopeful, a hopeful month. Yes. January kind of sucks. So. <laughs> With the sunset, <laughs> we came a full planetary circle there. Uh, uh, David, anything made you smile this week? Yeah. Um, if you've been feeling isolated during the pandemic, there's a huge party happening over in Ballard. Um, although this is a sea lion party. Seattle Times <laughs> had a great story about it. Um, these sea lions are barking at the top of their lungs all day and all night. Can you do uh, your imitation, please? Uh, even the visual is good honestly um and there, there there's a there's a floating dock and you can see you know, these things weigh up to like 600 pounds and they're it, it it tips and so one or the other of them is constantly sort of tipping it and then falling into the water and then vying for position and having to jump back up and then continuing to bark so um mm. If you're feeling isolated, go go check him out. It might cheer you up. Excellent, Amanda. We've we've just got less than a minute left. Did he uh, any smiles you want to pass on before we go? Yeah, I think it's been the dry spell of weather from the fog this week. Um, you know, being able to walk around. And mm. the other thing I was going to add is that uh, one thing that's making me smile this week is the Beatles. Um, I haven't, I didn't grow up listening to them, but my friend recently made me a deep dive playlist on them, and I've just been enjoying working my way. We've had discography. Wow. You've just, had you not That's listened it. to a Beatles album? That's it right there. Yeah. I've, I've heard their hits, yes. but not, not like, uh, you know, John Lennon and McCartney. And stuff yeah. Oh, that's a beautiful thing. I I've, I go down the, just, I have to go down the Beatles rabbit hole every once in a while. And it's just <laughs> good for my soul. Um, okay. We've, we've got to do it. If I knew, I guess the Beatles uh, from Abbey Road, we would, I would say the end. Uh, in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. Yeah, that too. I'm so tired. We have to say goodbye. Hey, uh, thanks for the show, everybody. David Hyde, Joni Balter, Amanda Zoe. Great to talk with you. Thanks for being Week in Review. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. David Hyde, KOW, political analyst, contributing columnist, Joni Balter, Seattle Times, Amanda Zoe, the show produced by Kevin Kniestead, social media and live streaming, streaming from Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu. Thanks for listening. I'm Bill Radke. Set on you. I wonder, should I 